Welcome to Alchemergy. My name is Dennis William Hauk, and together we will explore the ancient mysteries of alchemy. Hello, Wisdom Land. Our topic today is alchemy and the Hermetic tradition. My guest is Dennis William Hauk, who is the author of The Emerald Tablet, Alchemy for Personal Transformation. He is also the author of Haunted Places, the National Directory, and he is an authority on spiritual and mystical experiences. He is a practicing alchemist, which is a rather rare profession, I think. <laughs> Welcome, Dennis. Well, thank you for having me, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be with you. I uh, think your book, The Emerald Tablet, is an outstanding contribution to our modern understanding of what alchemy is all about. Many people assume that alchemy is sort of a, a pseudoscience from a bygone era having to do with uh, charlatans who attempted to hoodwink people into thinking they could transform lead into gold. Uh, but that's a very uh, superficial, if, if not entirely mistaken, idea of uh, the nature of alchemy. And uh, perhaps you could start by talking about what you do when you call yourself a practicing alchemist. I think that uh, myself and, and alchemists in the past would differentiate between true alchemy and, and this um, materialistic idea of duping people with the principles of mystical principles and things. It's the difference between uh, an alchemist and a, what they call the puffers or the people who spent their time at the furnaces and, and used actually a variety of, of tricks and and uh, ruses to, to get money saying they could make uh, lead from gold. For the alchemists, for the spiritual alchemists, and we're talking about men like Isaac Newton and uh, all the way back into history to some of the leaders in, in Egypt and even the Pharaoh Akhenaten who were practicing alchemy, uh, they, they approached it from a spiritual viewpoint. And they felt that uh, alchemy was about universal transformation and the idea was to focus and to retrieve uh, universal principles of transformation on all levels of reality. And that's the key thing about alchemy, I think, as compared to other sciences or religions or spiritual approaches is that uh, the alchemist believes that for something to be real, it has to manifest on all levels of reality. So it has to manifest on the psychological level, on the physical level, and on the spiritual level for it to be real. And uh, those those are the, the levels on which the alchemist practices. So in his laboratory, when he does an experiment, he's looking for a physical change. And, and truly, alchemists were looking for changing lead into gold. But simultaneously, they were looking to uh, transform their own spirit and also their own personality uh, along with that. And they felt that it couldn't happen unless all these things coincided. So it was a multifarious approach to uh, to transformation and uh, and very unique science, I think. Now, alchemy, as I understand it, is actually an Arabic word. Right. It comes from two words. <clears throat> Alchemy, which is, uh, chemi is the uh, Arabic word for Egypt. It actually refers to the, the dark black uh, fertile earth of the Nile Basin, uh, Nile Delta. And uh, it it's, says that, in one sense, that alchemy originated in Egypt, which I certainly believe, and I, I've traced the Emerald Tablet back to its Egyptian origins. And also, uh, it, it refers to the beginning of the work, uh, the alchemist's idea that there is a first matter or a, or a place, a starting point, uh, where there's a connection between mind and matter, and that this is a very fertile, dark, chaotic uh, uh, thing to work with, and whether it be in our own personalities as our souls, or whether it be in, in the matter as this mysterious first matter that the alchemists were so consumed with. Um, it all refers back to this, this dark soil, alchemy. Well, we're in an age today where physicists, who are considered, I suppose, the bedrock scientists, if, if there is a bedrock science, <laughs> it would be physics, but physicists themselves are coming around to appreciating, to understanding the role of consciousness, the role of the observer in the physical process. So, in, in a way, the alchemists' belief that the transformation needed to take place within as well as without is is something that today actually hundreds of physicists are are discussing that very idea. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, <coughs> physics uh, now looks at consciousness as uh, almost like a force in the universe, and uh, we do recognize the the effect that the observer can have on the, not only the experiment but uh, some quantum physicists like Helmut Schmidt and others have actually demonstrated that uh, mental states uh, can 
influence things like the radioactive decay of uh, elements and isotopes, and, uh, and so there's been even some psychokinetic uh, research. So the relationship between mind and matter, I think, is probably the hallmark of our of our century that, that, that we're recognizing this on, in, a, in a scientific sense. Yes, I think we're just beginning to. Just beginning to. Now, at least in terms of mainstream recognition, although certainly you could go back well over a hundred years in terms of right. psychical researchers. And Absolutely. It's the same type, and, and that's uh, another reason why I, I investigate on many different levels, too. I'm, I'm into paranormal encounters and mystical encounters, uh, just about anything weird <laughs> that's outside the uh, or at the borderline. Well, the interesting thing about alchemy, as you've presented it here, is that to call it weird would be um, a uh, a lack of acknowledgement that we're talking about a a complete holistic system of human transformation and one that has actually had enormous impact on Western civilization. Uh, absolutely, down through. Uh on through history. In fact, the, the essence of the alchemical philosophy is the perennial philosophy that, uh, that seems to return or pop up in so many different guises over the, over the centuries that uh, have gone back. And, and in another sense, uh, uh, you can almost trace these ideas further back even before writing. It's almost as if they're there uh, in, in part of our minds, part of our unconscious, that they, they spring up uh, and that they might be the true philosophy of the whole universe that we're into. Now, the emerald tablet uh, is a phrase many students of esoteric traditions will be familiar with, but probably very few of them understand exactly what it is. Uh, the tablet itself is a, a unique document, and uh, you can you can look at it as a actual physical existing uh, plaque, a greenish uh, emerald plaque that uh, has been described down through the centuries by many different philosophers and people who felt they've actually touched it. Or you can look at it as uh, part of the human spirit, uh, something that is re re comes out in different generations and different forms and different uh, different people are connected to it. And I look at it as both those things. And in the book, that's the way I present them. Uh, I did research uh, into the tablet and uh, uh, believe it or not, there seems to be some body of evidence there that uh, that the tablet goes much farther back than than we've thought uh, in the past. Uh, uh, there was some controversy that the tablet was a uh, uh, early centuries A.D. fraud by uh, by uh, early uh, Neoplatonist, and uh, I think that that has been fairly well refuted by um, uh, researchers that uh, that that is uh, it goes further back than that. And I actually traced it back to. Uh, to the time of Akhenaten, Pharaoh Akhenaten in Egypt, and uh, uh, found it in a lot of a lot of the phrases that are used in the tablet, and a lot of the ideas certainly are contained in most ancient of uh, Egyptian papyri, going back uh, 2,500 years. Well, one thing is for sure, uh, however it originated, if you were going to take the trouble to inscribe in writing something on emerald, you would want to be very careful that you chose your words well. <laughs> Indeed, and that's, uh, that's what it is. It's, it's a remarkably <clears throat> dense document, and dense in the sense, dense with meaning, because it's, uh, these uh, 13 uh, lines are just, uh, have been reinterpreted. They've generated millions and millions of words uh, from different people. And I think that uh, just in reading the tablet that we can, we can get a sense into its, uh, its deep meaning, and it really kind of pulls us in. It pulls people into to try and figure out exactly what the, uh, the meaning of its precepts are. Well, uh, the tablet, the original emerald tablet, is in, in some legends thought to have been created by the god Hermes. And exactly. In fact, uh, uh, the god Hermes, which is the Roman god Mercury, which before that was the Egyptian god Toth, uh, if you look at it in that sense, there have been some authors I've talked to actually who believe that the, the tablet originated with extraterrestrial visitors who may have come something like 12,000 years ago before the Great Flood. And it was a group of nine. We can track that through the records. And Toth was the leader of this group of nine. And Now, the philosophy associated with the Emerald Tablet is sometimes called Hermeticism, named after uh, the Greek god, I presume. That's correct, and it's a, a movement uh, that uh, is based almost exclusively on the philosophy that's presented in the Emerald Tablet, and that, again, has been dubbed the perennial philosophy by people like Aldous Huxley and, and carried down through the uh, centuries. It's just something that keeps popping up in thought, and uh, uh, the basic idea is that there exist two levels, two basic levels of reality from our standpoint, and one is called the below 
which can be thought of as a, a deeper uh, into matter, uh, more materialistic, a darker area. In, in perhaps in religions, this is the area where springs forth our demons and uh, devils and things like that. It's basically away from the light, and the above is towards the light and the divine realm, the realm of uh, not only gods, but more basically the archetypes and, and the um, forms from which matter and manifestation uh, arise. The thought was that uh, creation came about uh, through the projection of mind into matter. In other words, it was the thought of, of God or the word of God uh, that formed the chaotic matter into existence. And uh, so this basic idea uh, of the above and the below and the relationship between the above and below, the, the above flowing into the below, the symbol for it was the uh, snake biting its own tail, the Ouroboros, which is kind of a yin-yang symbol uh, indicating this change from light into darkness. And, and there's no ever was there an idea that one is bad and one is good. That came much later after, after the Hermetic uh, sciences. So the Hermetic approach is to look at darkness not as a bad, evil thing, but as part of the process of life and evolution and thought and the manifestation of God's idea. And I think that that is the biggest difference that you see in, in other philosophies. Now, the wisdom of the Emerald Tablet has often been summarized by the succinct phrase, as above, so below. Exactly. And it's, uh, it's only half the equation, though, actually, because the tablet says uh, that which is above corresponds to that which is below, and that which is below corresponds to that which is above. Therefore, it's, it's, a, it's a complementary relationship, and the above is no better than the below. Mind is no better than matter. It's all part of one process, an evolutionary uh, spiritual process uh, going on in the universe on all different levels. So earlier, when you equated the below with sort of the dark world of the demons and the above as the heavenly archetypal realm, uh, I, I began to wonder, well, where are we in the physical realm? Well, we, we are in, in between, and these are actually the three, the three levels of manifestation. Uh, what you might call uh, our relationship to the above and below is what defines us, and, and where we're at on this, uh, this scheme of things uh, gives us our, our worth and meaning to our lives, I think. Uh, we're part of the process. There's no doubt in my mind that consciousness is uh, part of reality in a very fundamental sense, and, and this is kind of the dynamics of it. Mm -hmm. Culturally speaking, Hermeticism had, uh, as I understand it, an enormous influence on the great thinkers of the Renaissance period. Absolutely. In fact, uh, there, was, there was great effort to replace the teachings of Aristotle in, in medieval Europe uh, with the teachings of Hermes, because it, it seemed to be a, a way of presenting not only science, but also religion uh, in, a, in a more objective sense, something you could actually work with. So it was a very, very uh, dynamic philosophy, and it, it just caught everybody uh, and brought them up in a big, from the church people to, to philosophers, brought them up in this big wave of uh, hermeticism that, that rumbled across Europe in, in the Renaissance. The, the writings of Shakespeare or Francis Bacon uh, would be full of hermetic references. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, the Shakespeare is so full of uh, hermetic references, and I'm not the one first one to notice that. There's been many, many books, but... Uh, in fact, I just saw a presentation of The Tempest, uh, which is so full of alchemical uh, references that you could almost translate it into an experiment, <laughs> an alchemical experiment, the way it's presented. So mm -hmm. the literature and uh, philosophy is just full of hermeticism because of this. Now, the idea, we started to tap into it in the last segment, the nine, the idea of the, the origin of the Emerald Tablet being attributed to a god, and you suggested perhaps an extraterrestrial being. It, it seems, uh, I, do, I, I do suggest that because I've talked with people who've done some more research on this, archaeologists and anthropologists who've looked at it from that viewpoint. And um, we do know that uh, about 12,000 years ago, there is a, a time in the Egyptian uh, Papri called Zeptepi, which is a, a time when gods roamed the earth and or godlike beings roamed the earth, and they had they brought to earth uh, mathematics, music. They brought to earth Toth was the inventor of writing and the actual scribe who wrote the Emerald Tablet to to uh, summarize this extraterrestrial or ancient or enlightened. Perhaps they were from Atlantis. Perhaps they're just enlightened people. But whatever it was, they seemed to be uh, in advance of the others around them at the time. And they summarized their ideas in the Emerald Tablet and some other writings of Toth uh, that were, according to the papyri, uh, in encased in a, in a pillar or two pillars, perhaps, that uh, that were meant to be like a time capsule of wisdom to not only 
uh, their generations, but also all future human generations. And and these uh, pillars survived the great flood uh, that took place and uh, and supposedly were rediscovered in Egypt. A lot of archaeologists uh, believe that the current monuments of Egypt were actually built on top of older monuments that were um, uh, monuments to these original wise people who, who visited Egypt. And uh, the principles in the tablet are referenced so many times in, in the ancient writings. The, uh, there's a reference about 3000 BC that uh, the writings of Toth had to be found before the pyramids could be built. And there was a great effort to find these, uh, these ancient writings, and apparently they were discovered. Pharaoh Akhenaten, about 1500 BC, uh, actually seems to incorporate the, the principles of the tablet and broke away from the ancient tradition, uh, the ancient uh, god of... Uh, I think that the god that, that was worshipped before Akhenaten can only be described as a god of ego. Uh, he was called the Amen, and uh, it was really the god that the warriors and the pharaohs prayed to before going into battle. It was a god of worldly goods. And Akhenaten replaced him with a very scientific concept called the Aten, or the solar disk, a very objective uh, way of looking at reality, and that this was the symbol of the above and the symbol of also the first matter and how it changes and wh where the life force comes from, and very profound idea ideas, and he actually set up a whole new religion in Egypt and lasted about 17 years. It was an extremely enlightened time in Egypt. He set up a whole new city of 60,000 residents. Women and men lived together in the same quarters, which was very unusual. And uh, there were schools of initiation uh, set up, uh, breathing schools, schools where we were taught spiritual, uh, physical, and uh, mental techniques. So extremely enlightened time. But again, the, the priest of Amen uh, would not stand still for it. And Akhenaten, his wife, Nefertiti, and uh, eventually his son, King Tut, were killed. Uh, seems to be pretty pretty good evidence for it, at least, by the, uh, by the priest of Amen. And in fact, that egotistical patriarchal God has survived to this day because... We can see them everywhere in our society. In fact, that's how we end our prayers even today, is with a man and mentioning his name. Oh, that's Same God. <laughs> really. <clears throat> I've always wondered about that word and its origin. Well, you, you know, here's another puzzle, though. Although alchemy seems to have this Egyptian origin, uh, to my understanding, it was widely practiced in China, in ancient China. Oh yes, and and the the uh, Taoist approach to uh, to alchemy is very similar to the European approach, except it was on a seemingly a more spiritual level. And the uh, the Taoist alchemists and the tantric al alchemists worked with vessels and containers that they visualized within their own bodies. They believed in circulating the light and doing meditation practices to change the lead of their own spirit into gold. There is evidence, uh, or at least, not evidence, I should say, but at least some legends that uh, Hermes traveled to Ceylon and uh, various places in the Far East and disseminated this knowledge there. So that there might have been a, a real physical link between the ancient Chinese and the ancient Egyptian alchemists. Indeed, according to legend. Very interesting, because normally we don't think of those two cultures as having had much contact. No, no, certainly not, and the... Uh, it, uh, it's an exciting idea that the world could be that have one philosophy like that at any time. <clears throat> Ready to continue? Mm -hmm. Okay. <coughs> the alchemists seem to have mapped out a very specific process, as I recall, a seven-stage process for human transformation. Indeed, and they base that on the Emerald Tablet. Uh, that Almost all the medieval alchemists had copies of the tablet hanging on their, their wall, and they constantly referred to the secret formula that it contained. And that, that formula, which I've dubbed the Emerald Formula, is a seven-step process. It's a process of going, uh, working with the below and working, then coming together at, at our in-between level, and then working with the above and working with all these levels of reality uh, to create something that's valid on all levels of reality. The seven stages are sometimes also equated with the seven planets or the seven elements uh, that were known in, in medieval and ancient times. Yeah, and, and, and that's something uh, that alchemy, uh, I think, inaugurated. was very different from our approach today. The alchemists believed that there were what they called correspondences or signatures between principles and between their physical manifestation. It's all part of this philosophy that uh, that mind is projected into matter to create it. And so there's some signature left of God in what he's created. And uh, they, they felt that, for instance, the planet Saturn, a very slow-moving planet in the heavens, 
uh, and also related to the myths of, of Saturn and, and Thonos and uh, the uh, sickled. Uh, These are the titans times. who preceded the Greek gods. Exactly. Yes, the titans, uh, the titan myths, and uh, and they felt that that had the characteristics of lead, and that that uh, that was a signature in heavens of lead, and so. Uh, it was a very intuitive approach, a very mythic approach uh, that was very practical, too. And they actually uh, worked with these ideas, and, and they tried to see how the same idea or the same archetype was expressed on different levels. So it was a worldview in which everything was united by these different principles. It incorporated what we would think of as astrology, uh, mineralogy, psychology, uh, botany, um, of course, chemistry, and uh, psychology, and, of course, and spiritual yes. practice uh -huh. at the same time. Even <clears throat> some of the arts, such as uh, masonry. I, I mean, the, the masons of of ancient days were alchemists. Oh, absolutely! And alchemical and, symbolism is is built into the ancient cathedrals. Absolutely, um, in, <clears throat> all over the world, and that's that's the way they express their. Their um, philosophy, they, they expressed it in art, they expressed it in their sculpture, in the buildings, in their uh, fraternal organizations, whatever uh, way. It was all very much a part of their life. It wasn't separate. That's something you do on Sunday or, or separate it from your daily work life. It was all one, one view, one philosophy, and uh, I think one approach. It was a time when there was no real difference between science and religion like there is today. And in, in a sense, this synthesis was... It remains the basis of the Western esoteric tradition. It does. It, it, it went underground, you know, during the Middle Ages and uh, has resurfaced. But the tradition itself, in the symbols of uh, tarot card and in, in the in astro astrological um, beliefs, um, all kinds of what we call the hermetic sciences. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense when you look at the alchemical symbolism, tarot cards, or the many wonderful books of alchemy, including your own, that include these ancient. Uh, uh, engravings, there is a dreamlike quality. There is a sense of, of the interpenetration of our awaking world with the world of dreams. Right. The world, uh, the, the waking world and the, and the world of dreams, the dream world reality were very much two different things, perhaps expressions of the above and below within us, uh, and they were related and they were uh, part of a co-creation of reality. So that the time that we spent sleeping and the time we spent in the waking world were equally important and, the, and could give us equal, equally penetrating insights into what reality was and what our relationship to it was. Now, can you, uh, maybe as uh, an entree to this work, can you um, recite the uh, text of the Emerald Tablet? Sure, yeah. Uh, the tablet begins, um, it's written in uh, seven rubrics, seven basic rubrics, what they call them. And they call it that because in the Latin versions, uh, the first uh, letter in the, in the section began, was written in red, capital red. But the first rubric is, um, truly, without deceit, certain, and most veritable. And that, that is kind of an introductory approach. It's kind of a, uh, telling you where to put your mind and how to approach the tablet. And uh, that, this, that the truths that are going to be presented are... Uh, available to us and verifiable to us on all different levels. And the tablet continues in the second rubric with kind of a presentation of this philosophy that we've been talking about. And it begins, that which is below corresponds to that which is above, and that which is above corresponds to that which is below, in order to accomplish the miracles of the one thing. And just as all things have come from this one thing, through the meditation of one mind, so do all created things originate from this one thing through transformation. And that is a very succinct summary of this ancient, ancient philosophy. And, it, and, and it's also using very generic terms. It's talking about matter or the, the, this uh, below area as the one thing. In other words, that incorporates all things, all manifested things. And the one mind is uh, what we've called God by many, many different names, but it is a generic term for God, really, if you look at it in that sense. So this is very objective, very scientific terms that, that are being used in the tablet. The tablet continues with actually presenting the the um, steps and how to work with the one thing in the in in its transformation. In other words, the whole tablet is about really the one thing and how to transform it and how it's to be uh, transformed in the evolutionary sense. And so, the next rubric, the third rubric, presents these different stages or steps, and it begins with its father is the sun, its mother the moon, the wind carries it in its belly, its nurse is the earth. 
It is the origin of all, the consecration of the universe, its inherent strength is perfected if it is turned into earth. These are the, the, the first four steps in the Emerald Tablet, and it presents them in terms of the elements, which are the archetypal things with which the alchemists work. In other words, the first part of this, it's Father, the Son, is references fire, and the uh, second, Mother, the Moon, references water, and the wind, of course, air, and earth is this final or fourth elements with which the alchemists work. Now, at that point, the conjunction uh, that occurs on, on the earthly plane of the above and the below, we have worked up to this point with, with the uh, energies below, and the tablet continues with how to approach these energies above, or how to uh, enter the above, in the realm of the above, or the realm of mind. And it begins, um, separate the earth from fire, the subtle from the gross, gently and with great ingenuity. It rises from earth to heaven and descends again to earth, thereby combining within itself the powers of both the above and the below. And these are the following three steps of uh, the Emerald Formula, and we'll talk about those, but uh, it basically it's telling us to, to enter this subtle realm and to use uh, a distilling knowledge to, to work with it, and we'll, and we'll go into that. And the, the final result of all this is talked about in the next rubric, which says, Thus will you obtain the glory of the whole universe. All obscurity will be clear to you. This is the greatest force of all powers because it overcomes every subtle thing and penetrates every solid thing. And then as a, as a summary here, in this way was the universe created. From this comes many wondrous applications because this is the pattern. Now, in a lot of translations, the word pattern is, is translated as sample, perhaps, and there's even some people who believe that there was an actual sample of the first matter contained within the, the, uh, the original tablet. But it gives the idea that this tablet contains the pattern too, or the formula too, and uh, that's to be conveyed. And then the uh, the final rubric, the seventh rubric, references the author. Therefore am I called thrice greatest Hermes, having all three parts of the wisdom of the whole universe. Herein have I completely explained the operation of the sun. And the operation of the sun is the operation of the whole universe. It's the operation of evolution and, uh, and our position in it. Mm. Well, those are the words that somebody took a lot of trouble to inscribe <coughs> directly into Emerald. Or, or, well, I should say it's a translation of, of what those words would have originally right. been. Um, I'm talking with Dennis William Hauck, author of The Emerald Tablet, Alchemy for Personal Transformation. We have many things to explore because we're getting at the heart of the Western esoteric tradition. Do, do we know what language the Emerald Tablet was originally uh, written in? There is uh, uh, references that it was working, uh, written in uh, Phoenician, possibly an uh, early dialect of uh, Sumerian. Uh, the characters of the Emerald Tablet were described as very strange-looking uh, cuneiform-type uh, marks, and uh, so it's thought to be an early form of Phoenician. It's not really uh, clear at all uh, if it exists anymore. No, there is some evidence uh, that the tablet uh, was actually put on display in, in uh, Heliopolis, Egypt, after Alexander the Great supposedly found it in the grave of Hermes. And it was put on public display about 330 B.C. So we have some actual letters of people who, who say they've seen it uh, at that time, describe it as this emerald tablet, uh, perhaps 18 by 12 inches or something like that, with the, the lettering in base relief form. In other words, the, the letters actually stuck out and you could feel them. And then uh, it, it was supposedly put on display uh, in, in for scholars at Alexandria. There was a committee of scholars, uh, Jewish, uh, Arabian, and Greek uh, alchemist actually who, who translated the tablet into Greek and we do have records of those three different revisions that they made and then the tablet uh, because of the uh, destruction of the library was taken to uh, Giza is the last reference uh, and probably this is about 400 AD and put in the Hall of Records or someplace on Giza and to protect it from these uh, many mobs that were burning libraries around the world at the time. Interesting. So perhaps someday it will be rediscovered. Wouldn't that be something? That would be something. That would be great. In, indeed. And, and there are people who, who maintain that portions of the Library of Alexandria itself uh, are waiting to be rediscovered. Yes. Uh, even those parts of Myrna Water, uh, the scrolls would last. And we, we know that there are at least 70,000 scrolls uh, left after the burning of the library, uh, which reduced it, I think, from 700,000 scrolls. It's a terrible tragedy, but... Uh, but a lot of wisdom was lost at that time. I think the story of alchemy would be incomplete without reference to the great Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. 
Absolutely. Uh, Jung um, discovered that alchemy, the alchemical images and ideas, were part of all of our psyches. It was all embedded in us, uh, what I call the emerald tablet that we all carry around in our soul. Uh, these images he recognized in his patients, and they were alchemical images. And if you ever looked at any alchemical prints, you can sense their deep meaning, uh, the way that they bring out unconscious principles. And uh, and certainly Jung become, became... Uh, a devotee of alchemy. He had the largest library of alchemy books in the world at one time and uh, spent, I, I would say, at least 50% of his effort uh, bringing out alchemical principles and applying them to his practice. So, uh, and, and later, psychologists, uh, Edward Ettinger uh, and others, have, have applied the principles in the same way. Jung was very clear that the chemical processes being described, or the ostensibly chemical processes being described by the alchemists, actually referred to the transformations of the human soul or psyche very much uh, along the same lines that he experienced with his patients in depth psychology. Exactly. He recognized that these processes, which are universal, and, and uh, he learned, like the alchemist, to uh, take advantage of this formula or this pattern and uh, cure people and help people. Mm -hmm. Now, Dennis, you yourself have have described in your book alchemical transformations in your own life. Yes, I've gone through uh, quite a quite a lot of changes in my life. Of course, like all of us, and I think that uh, the processes that I went through were right in line with the development of uh, that were described in in the Emerald Tablet and are part of this formula of transformation. I know that uh, when I started out in my academic careers, I was very much uh, a logical. Uh, scientifically, a, a person. You have, you have a master's degree in mathematics, and that was my uh, that was my approach. I figured that uh, this was the the masculine way of looking at the universe. This aggressive, uh, penetrating logic was like a sword I was going to carry out to, into the world. You know, and uh, a lot of people are like that. I think, and it takes something takes something to confront them to change. And uh, that happened to me while I was in graduate school at the University of Vienna, and. Uh, I got into uh, uh, the work of Kurt Gödel, a very famous mathematician yes. at the University of Vienna, and uh, he actually proved, and uh, it's probably not worthwhile to go into the actual details of his proof, but using contradictions in, in mathematics and basic uh, uh, paradoxes in the foundations of mathematics, he demonstrated that the logical totally logical or systematic approach of any system, not only mathematics, but any um, self-referencing system like mathematics that's built on these propositions and then uh, from the simplest observations to the most complicated formulas, uh, that any system like that, any system of thought, logical thought, is flawed and cannot, basically cannot tap into the final truth of any situation. No uh, system of thought can explain itself. Exactly. Basically, that's what it is. And uh, and that was very much realizing it in the mathematical formula like I, I did in Vienna made me see that this was quite true, that the foundations of mathematics, which I thought was a god, <laughs> or, or certainly the queen of the sciences, uh, was flawed in a way that required me to adapt my thinking if I wanted to find truth in the universe. And that's kind of what my idealistic approach to to life was, that I felt there was some fundamental truth. So it forced me to use uh, to tap into this more feminine side of my personality and uh, use things like feelings and uh, confront feelings and let stop thinking so fast that I allowed feelings to surface and examine my feelings. And when you do that with formulas and in mathematics, you develop what's called intuition, I suppose, by mathematicians themselves. And the, the marvelous, marvelous things that you can do with intuition and mathematics, it opened up a whole new realm of interpretation for me, a whole new way of finding truth. And, uh, and, and I found other mathematicians who approached it like this. So for me, it was a very big change at that time and uh, required some fundamental revisions of, of my, my whole approach, my, my belief system, and uh, the way I thought about uh, wisdom and, uh, and, and things like that. So uh, it was what the alchemists would call a calcination experience or an experience of fire and thought uh, where, you, where you have to give up your beliefs because you've been confronted by something uh, that's, that's pushed them aside, that's totally wiped them out of the way. You have to replace them with something more valid and more lasting. Mm. We've been discussing alchemy as a process of personal transformation. And you've already described the process known as calcination. Mm -hmm. The process of fire, which begins anybody's alchemy. I think it's like a revolutionary process that uh, overthrows our, our previous belief systems and overthrows the, uh, the, the current matter 
the alchemist in the laboratory took uh, materials and, and burned them in open flame or in a crucible until there was really nothing left but ashes. And, and that's where the word comes from, calcination. It's related to our words, uh, calcium. And uh, it, it basically reduces things to this, this state where the essences uh, are about all that's left. I suppose sometimes that can happen to people through experiences of extreme shame or humiliation or mortification. It is a very humiliating process because uh, it works on our thoughts, actually. Calcination and fire is associated with our thoughts and, and reducing our thoughts to, to their true level. In other words, rid of all ego and, and self-deception. So it's a way of, of um, cleaning or purifying our thoughts by fire. And it's a kind of a letting go. Absolutely. Uh, it's a let, you have to let go. Uh, the, the things are actually taken away from you because it, uh, it's an experience that reduces you uh, to your essence. Here you write that people who have not undergone disillusion are judgmental, greedy, and excessive, and their relationships can only be described as selfish. But because of their ungrounded optimism, they tend to shine in social situations. Absolutely, and dissolution is kind of the operation that that accompanies calcination, and it's these two initial operations that are re so revolutionary and so uh, overthrowing to our established personality. So, and then the the places where most of us spend our lives, uh, just burning up our thoughts and replacing them with better thoughts, or and dissolving our feelings and dissolving uh, our our inner essences so they flow. And uh, so, if you look at it like that, fire. And calcination works with thoughts, and, and dissolution, which is a watery process, uh, works with feelings and emotions and works mm -hmm. with the unconscious. I jumped ahead there very quickly. <laughs> I hope I didn't confuse our listeners. No, right into, actually, it was a good, good uh, way to relate it to because there are related processes, dissolution and calcination, fire and water. And really, the, the alchemists believe that that was the key of moving forward in, in alchemy was to bring together fire and water into one substance, as, as paradoxical and as strange as it seems, uh, we feel that happening in ourselves as we progress along in alchemy. We feel that our thoughts and feelings uh, become more and more uh, pure and, and more and more related to each, each other. And uh, in dissolution, it's a very much a process where these things spring up from, from our unconscious and our dream world reality. With me, uh, after I'd come back from uh, the university, uh, I, I took a job. I was very interested in mystical experiences, and I took a job in uh, New York as an editor of a, a whole a bunch of magazines in the paranormal and mystical realm, ESP mag magazine, official UFO, ancient astronauts, and things like that. And I very much enjoyed doing it. And uh, while I was working in New York, though, uh, the high, fast pace of publishing in New York, believe me, is a lot faster than <laughs> mathematics even. And uh, it was a very fast-paced world, and I really lost touch with myself, I think. And uh, and myself, my, my true self, expressed itself in, the, in dream images and recurring dreams of uh, especially that carried messages telling me that I was uh, ignoring this essence, that I was ignoring my feelings and... Uh, and so they're really true messages that seem to come through to you. And if you miss them, then you're missing out on this possibility to change. Uh, and there's synchronicities, too, that take place uh, that also also under other indicators from the unconscious uh, that you that you need to change and that you're undergoing change. I know with me, it was um, I was on the road quite a bit and uh, giving lectures. And I checked into many different motel rooms and... Um, on three different trips, when I checked into a hotel room, the Gideon Bible in the in the room had a, seemed like it had a message for me, and uh, it was very spooky for someone as logical <laughs> as I was to to think that there was something going on uh, so irrational in my life. But like the first room, I'd wake up in the, in the middle of the night, and, and the Bible was open at the top of the uh, burrow, and uh, it was open to the Psalm 19, which uh, basically talks about the seven laws of God and how how to change uh, things into gold. And it's called the alchemical psalm, actually, uh, in, in by the alchemist. But I never connected that, actually, until the second time I was at another motel room. And uh, the, the Bible was in the, uh, in the drawer, and it had a big piece of food wedged in between the, the pages. And it was right there at the page for uh, the 19th psalm also. And uh, then the third time it happened, the uh, I checked into a room and the page for the 19th Psalm was bent over along with several other pages. And, and it was just like three times clicked in my head that there's something synchronistic going on here. And uh, so I, I read the uh, 
psalm with an open mind and tried to penetrate its message. And it was telling me that these processes, I believe, were going on within myself. So for a person, let's say, amongst our listeners right now who, who are not necessarily, many of our listeners, I'm sure, are not steeped in alchemy, they may nevertheless be going through alchemical processes that will be reflected in events such as this, synchronicities, dreams. Absolutely. They're, they're, these stages uh, take place in our lives uh, in, in a rising spiral, actually, I think, of transformation. And one time you may be at calcination on one level and, and another time at a different level. But basically, again... The, the fires of calcination burn away our thoughts, burn away and purify or refine our thoughts. Reduce us to Reduce. the essence. Exactly. And, and that essence is further exposed or, or allowed to flow during dissolution or when the elements of our unconscious unite with our conscious mind. And this is another way of purifying our emotions and feelings that so many of us, uh, our ego works on us in such, such controlling ways that uh, our feelings and the times we've been hurt in our lives sometimes actually end up as knots in our body, knots in our muscle where, where this energy is trapped. And just going through dissolution and, and letting go and having things flow in you again, uh, there's tremendous energy that can be released from that experience. And so once you have your feelings purified and your thoughts purified, uh, you're ready to move on uh, to the next phase. And so once again, the calcination is, is like being burned by the fire, reduced to your pure essence. And right. dissolution is sort of like uniting with the, the larger subconscious, flowing with the waters of life. Exactly. And, and, the, and the symbol of water is very much a symbol of dream, a lunar of lunar energies and feminine energies, passive energies that need to be reconciled within our personalities. And you write that while dissolution is primarily a subjective experience, the next operation separation takes a more objective approach indeed it's it's a way of realizing that you've got the essences exposed and you look at yourself and you realize you've been reduced to this and often it's at a low stage in your life uh, when you realize that all you've got are these essences in your personality and you want to you want to save those essences you want to pull them back and and take them to the place where you can work with them and, and become genuine again, regain your innocence. And, and uh, that's what happened to me in New York. Uh, I got out of that world. Uh, in fact, um, the editor of one of the magazines I was writing for and his secretary come together and they wanted to put a false story on the cover about uh, a woman from Connecticut who had been abducted by aliens and felt that her uh, five-year-old child was an alien child and very grotesque, very bizarre case. And it was totally fraud and, uh, so I sent out uh, news releases announcing that it was a fraud, and of course I got fired, and uh, even got taken to court for using the postage to send out news news releases and arrested. And so uh, I went from this top of a uh, Park Avenue uh, skyscraper to uh, to Nevada, and uh, in a gold mine where I ended up. Actually, it was a total change of environment for me. Uh, something that I felt was the only way to uh, to survive with my with these essences that were being revealed. And I did. I moved from uh, uh, New York City, Manhattan, uh, left all my friends and acquaintances there, and uh, moved out into the middle of the Nevada desert, got a job in a gold mine, ended up 1,800 feet underground doing a labor task job, and uh, totally opposite of what I've been brought up and expected in my life. Uh, but out there in the middle of the desert, I had time to reflect and uh, meditate and buy alchemy books. That's about all I did, and it was wonderful for me, and I, I, I truly enjoyed it. And uh, you were so, in your element, so I was to in speak. my element, exactly. My element, which the alchemists associated separation with air, which are spiritual influences. And often, often we go through a separation phase in our lives where we realize that we're spiritual beings and, and we just have to separate from people and situations that are totally materially or, oriented and focus on material objectives, uh, at the expense of spiritual values. At the same time, you were deep within the womb of the earth. I, I didn't connect the symbolism. In fact, until I wrote the book, I never connected the idea that I was working in a gold mine with alchemy. But I was indeed mining gold in, that, in the gold mine, and I was mining gold in my own personality. Very, very striking. Yes. And, and, and it's interesting that that wasn't uh, consciously aware uh, is because you were studying alchemy <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I, had, I really thought of the gold mine as uh, when I went to the desert, I, want, I knew where I wanted to live and I wanted to live by a lake and things. And the only job around there was this gold mine. And uh, it was a well-paying job and a dangerous job, but uh, it didn't phase me in the least. And I ended up in, uh, <laughs> in the depths of the earth mining gold. Well, that was a... Uh, 
a process where you were, I mean, I would say you were in the crucible, but perhaps there's a different word for it. In the bowels of the earth, it's the same thing. Being in a crucible, the alchemists, the whole earth was like that, and they believed that the metals within the bowels of the earth, through the heat of the earth, evolved from lead, the lowest metal, and the most base metal, into gold, which was the most perfected metal. In other words, gold at one time was lead. Mm-hmm. Now, here is a, uh, a lovely engraving in your book which says, During separation, the alchemist must split apart and expose the hermetically sealed egg of self. And there is a, a picture of an alchemist wielding a sword, and there is an egg on the table. He's trying to split open the egg with his sword. Very symbolic uh, drawing. And in fact, in separation, there's a lot of drawings with swords cutting through the air and uh, knives cutting up things and, and, and splitting them apart. And that's what it feels like to be in separation. You're, you're separating things. You're filtering things. Uh, that's what happens in the laboratory. The solution from calcination and dissolution is filtered at this stage to, to uh, separate out or layer out uh, the essence or the essential ingredients. That's what you're doing in your own personality. And I suppose separation also implies analyzing. Yes, it's a very analytical, very objective phase uh, where you you evaluate things, evaluate uh, your motives in life and, and your situation. And the alchemical process of seven stages implies, would seem to me, that analysis can be a very sterile activity if it's not preceded by the uh, calcination and dissolution. Exactly. Uh, separation in this in this phase is working with essences that you've gone through hell basically yeah. to expose and work with and so they they're appreciated on a whole new level it's nothing sterile even though it is objective otherwise it's very likely for if if some individual were to attempt self-analysis, the good chance is the, uh, the defenses of the ego would be too strong. Absolutely, and that's how it is in most of our cases. Even our, when we try to do most basic change in our lives, from dieting to, to learning something new, we confront the ego uh, on all levels. And it's not until it's burnt or killed out of, and out of the way that we can actually make any progress. Because our own capacity for... Frankly, self-deception is is just as considerable, I guess, as our capacity for greatness. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. So, after the stage of separation, we move into the stage of conjunction. Actually, uh, and this is a turning point in alchemy, where... Where now we've worked, we've gone through these processes below, and we've separated out our essences, we've identified the things that we want to work with, and, and the gold of our being. Now we've brought these together, and in the personality, I think that this is a, a time when, um, when the masculine consciousness and the feminine consciousness come together. Jung would have called it the marriage of the king and queen of the personality, which is like our thinking and our feeling functions coming together and producing something new. That, uh, that really is on a whole different level and it gives us so much confidence to, to carry on in alchemy. When, when thinking and feeling come together, it creates a, a new state of consciousness that's very intuitive. It's very oriented towards truth. I think the Egyptian alchemist called it intelligence of the heart, which I think is one of the best descriptions of this type of knowledge and way of knowing. It's an inner gnosis that gives you very much confidence. Uh, it's an integration of the opposing elements in your consciousness, uh, what Jung would have called integration of the personality. It's exactly what we're talking about here. The conjunction is, is a wonderful, confident, giving experience if, it's, if, if a person can do it. Now, most of us spend our lives in dissolution and calcination, and we rarely, in, as individuals, get to this stage of conjunction. But we have to be here as alchemists to continue uh, with our transformation. It's sort of a um, uniting of the masculine and feminine. It's exactly parts. that. And in fact, the, uh, the this uniting creates what the alchemists called the lesser stone. And in the mysteries of the of the Hermetic tradition, it's the lesser mysteries. It's working with the the outside elements and getting them. Uh, often, the the lesser mysteries were were like teachings that you go through schools and you go through certain psychological exercises. This is the creation of the lesser stone, which becomes eventually the greater stone of our true uh, resurrection. So uh, I imagine it also has a lot to do with our interpersonal relationships, particularly a marriage relationship. Oh, absolutely. And you can interpret this, all of this alchemy 
as as it occurs in relationships, certainly the fire of a of a new relationship uh, tends to burn out over time. And in order to renew that, you have to go through a calcination of of the beliefs between the individuals, a dissolution of their feelings again, and eventually, hopefully, uh, coming together on a new level in a conjunction where the the uh, things that the male contributes or the female, whatever it is in a relationship, that these things are balanced and, and create something new. So there has to be this coming together for that relationship to survive. A sense in which the yeah, masculine and feminine within mm-hmm. each partner can relate with the other partners. So right. That, that both partners have this balance. Exactly. And it's not, and it's often not a, a, a gender thing. Often, sometimes uh, the female partner brings more of the masculine consciousness to a relationship. And sometimes the male does. Uh, but in any case, it, it's you have to work with the essences and not the outward seemings. Mm-hmm. Now, June Singer, uh, the Jungian mm-hmm. psychologist, uh, has written quite Quite a bit about Gnosticism and also what she calls the hermaphrodite, which I, I think embodies this. This is uh, the stage where the alchemists actually believe was the creation of the hermaphrodite, which is kind of a gross melding of opposites. It's a bringing together of the uh, of these energies, these feminine, masculine energies, in a new body. And yet you can still see the identity in a hermaphrodite. You can still identify the feminine and masculine parts, but they're not, they're not totally unified as it would be in, say, the androgen, which would be a more, uh, higher evolved uh, level of the uh, hermaphrodite. But at this stage, the hermaphrodite is exactly what the alchemist is talking about. Well, and I'm glad you reminded me because the title of June Singer's book is actually androgyny. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is the higher right. expression. It's- yeah, and she was she, as a Jungian psychologist. She was very much uh, in tune with uh, alchem- alchemical uh, procedures and operations, as as all Jungian uh, Alan Lestar. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a um, first the fire, then the water, then comes the air of analysis and separation, and then conjunction. Conjunction on the earth or in the earth, and the alchemists looked at earth as any manifestation, any any uh, non-volatile or lasting thing. We've talked about the first four stages, calcination, dissolution, separation, and conjunction. The fifth stage is known as fermentation. It, it is, and it comes after the uh, turning point of conjunction where, where our basic personality has come together to the point where we can survive in the above. And uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, the above is this realm of mind or or pure spirit uh, that exists without material influences in it. And uh, the big question, of course, is how do you enter the above? How do you enter into heaven? And uh, in the Emerald Tablet, it tells us to separate the earth from fire. And basically, that separate the material body uh, from uh, the fire of consciousness. And, and we do that basically by dying and being reborn on a new level. And that's what uh, fermentation is all about. Just like natural fermentation, uh, it begins with a process of decomposing and uh, and rotting, death. Uh, and a lot of these images that you see in alchemical engravings of, um, of skulls and graveyards and and uh, uh, putrefying bodies and coffins uh, are not negative at all, not, not, not in that sense to the alchemist at all. They're very hopeful signs because... The personality and the ego have to die in order to be reborn. So this initial phase was called putrefaction, and it's part of this two-process operation of fermentation. And after the putrefaction occurs, which is really, in most of us, the dark night of the soul that we go through, when the optimism of the conjunction, the optimism of having and confidence of having our personality intact, is destroyed when we realize that what is our personality anyway, in the, in the sense of lasting, uh, what can we do in the world uh, to make a, an impression, and how can we affect um, reality being mortal beings? And it's mostly thoughts like that that we go through. When, when we are at that state, and many, many people who go through mystical and paranormal encounters are at that putrefied state uh, in their personality, where they feel there's nothing left, they're at the end of the rope, and all of a sudden, uh, there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel. And actually, in true putrefaction, there's a milky substance that appears sometimes on this blackened, decaying matter that the alchemist believed was this signature of the light of the other side that we experience in near-death experiences and a lot of paranormal and mystical experiences. And it's a light that's saying that we've come through this, that we've survived, that, that the universe is still there for us, that our consciousness continues on a whole new level. And reaching that level, that whole experience is like a fermentation. And we realize that the realm of mind 
uh, is a very real place. It's a very real place to exist in. And actually, it's even better than than anything we've experienced before in our lives. And, and very few people want to return from this experience of being totally in the mind. And the signature that we were entering fermentation was what the alchemists called the peacock's tail, which is an oily, iridescent, uh, rainbow-emitting oil that films on, on top of the blackened matter. So each stage here has a correspondence in the in the laboratory experiments. And fermentation is, of course, this influx of inspiration and uh, and meaning. It's a very religious experience for most people. And I think that uh, it's an experience that lets us know that there is a truly separate other side to reality that we don't experience in our everyday reality. I think for me that, uh, in fact, it was fermentation that gave me my whole mystical bent when I was seven years old. I had had a shot, uh, went in for inoculations, and the nurse, a very big burly nurse, gave me a shot in my rump, and I didn't have much padding there, and it went right into my uh, hip bone. To make matters worse, the needle was infected with hepatitis, and the hepatitis went into my right into my marrow. And uh, I got a severe case of hepatitis, nearly died, but was not expected to live. My liver had expanded, uh, tripled its size, and I was having trouble breathing. It was pushing into my heart and lungs. Very bad experience that took me a long time to recover from. And I was at, at the edge of death. I was at this putrefied uh, uh, experience. My personality was certainly dead. My ego was certainly dead. I wanted to do nothing but... Uh, uh, no game, no no idea of uh, entertainment had, had could penetrate this this darkness I was in until one day I was uh, outside and uh, and a wind came up. Uh, I was playing outside. A wind came up. It was like a like a pregnant warm wind is all I can remember or describe it as. But it was so interesting, it was so fascinating that I actually followed it into a field behind our house and a prairie, and the wind seemed to go down into a hole by an oak tree. And it was a very deep hole. It must have been at least eight feet deep. So me, being seven years old, it was a very dangerous place to be. But I, I remember standing right on the edge of that hole and watching this wind or feeling this wind inside the hole and then just standing there, just uh, fascinated by the whole uh, feeling of it, the whole idea that uh, that there was something warm and, and loving here or something like that. And uh, the next thing I knew, though, about halfway up the hole, a, a ball of light formed, a ball of yellow light. I was, of course, even more drawn to it, more fascinated. And I wasn't afraid and didn't want to run away. In fact, I, I was helpless and felt drawn into the experience. Then this ball of light uh, just took on a rainbow of colors. Octagonal patterns started emerging from inside it. And uh, I stood there totally transfixed by this experience until uh, until I thought I heard my mother calling me. But, of course, she wasn't. I was miles away from home. And it must have been some psychological thing, but that's what pulled me away from this because I truly wanted to merge with this phenomenon, whatever it was. And uh, it really wasn't until I was in graduate school in Vienna again that I happened to be looking through an al- alchemical text and saw a picture of this, uh, a, a diagram and a description of exactly what I've seen. And they called it the first matter, which is this uh, state of matter between mind and matter, between manifestation and uh, the alchemists, it was a big part of their research and their and their work to find the first matter because it was what they could use to create anything, uh, to transmute anything. It was the great secret of alchemy. And it just fell into place, and that's really what got me interested in alchemy. So that was my fermenting experience. And uh, in a lot of people, the fermenting experience can get out of control, and you can lose contact with reality uh, because it's such a religious and spiritual experience. The first matter, is that related to what is sometimes known as the philosopher's stone? Exactly. The the first matter is the um, matter of the work at the beginning of alchemy. It's the chaotic thing, the chaotic forces of uh, the archetypal forces that you're working with. And the philosopher's stone is at the end of the process of alchemy. You've taken this first matter, which you have to have to create the stone, and you've uh, uh, purified it, and you've fashioned it into a stone, an eternal, incorruptible stone that you can look at as part of your personality now, uh, maybe a part of your spiritual body or astral body, or or gold, if you're working with lead. Mm. My uh, mentor, Arthur Young, who mm. was a student of alchemy, used to say, uh, do you know what the philosopher's stone is, he'd ask <laughs> me, and he'd say, it's the obstacles that you face in life. It is, in a way, because mm-hmm. the obstacles is where your alchemy begins. Uh, yeah. If you're just complacent, you're not undergoing alchemy or change. Mm-hmm. Well, then there's still another process. 
Right, and in working with these, this uh, two more. <laughs> well, we have two more, right? And mm-hmm. and and in working with the, the the fermentation experience, we go right into distillation. Hopefully, we do because um, the fermenting experience, as I said, is a very overwhelming experience. And if you don't learn to work with these energies by gaining some objectivity by backing off, then you've lost your personality. Your personality may disintegrate, and you and you don't function anymore in, in society. It's it's mental illness arising uh, in a lot of cases and uh, trouble handling uh, what is a religious experience. So distillation is kind of a scientific attitude, and you just step back and you try and see how you can work with these forces and how you can use them and uh, how you can apply them. And it's purifying the uh, the matter of the work through uh, distillation, which is, uh, of course, most of us realize that uh, distillation is a process where we boil something and it condenses and recondenses into a much more purified form. We start out with grape juice and it ferments into wine, but if it's distilled, we have fine cognac. Exactly. It brings out the spirit mm-hmm. of, uh, of the f- solution, the, the original putrefying and fermenting solution. And that is a process, uh, of course, we, we think of distilled water as, as well. Right. Distilled water is the purified water. And if you continue distilling water or distilling anything in repeated distillations, just like occurs in our life over and over again, where we try and gain perspective, uh, you come up with what the alchemists call the mother of the stone, which is just the very dense, very purified solution that contains the philosopher's stone uh, that you were talking about. And there is a sense to me in which the distillation isn't so different from calcination. Both seem to be a, a, a reduction to the essence. Right, and, and they are. And, and um, calcination takes place with fire and distillation takes place with water. But they're both operations of, of fire and heat and, uh, and, and also a reduction, reducing type uh, actions. And the final phase of alchemy is called coagulation. Coagulation is a, a coming together or, or a, a bringing into reality of these forces that we've been working with. Basically, the congealed or congealed object is something that partakes of both liquid and solid state. It's a soft, uh, malleable, uh, adaptable uh, state. And, it, and it, it's not only a state of matter, but a state of mind, too. It's actually what we would call the hermetic consciousness. And from, from the word Hermes, who is the supposed author of the tablet, because he was a god that was believed to exist on all levels of reality. Mercury, Hermes, was the messenger of the gods and able to go into heaven and retrieve uh, these these information from above and knowledge from above, gnosis, and, uh, and bring them back into reality, into our reality. So coagulation is a coming together of all these purified essences and bringing them into uh, an incorruptible state where they're fused, where we have this androgynous or living stone uh, that uh, that we can that is in, incorruptible in the, in the personality. It's like you're not phased by events uh, or uh, you're not uh, upset by conversations or humiliations. Uh, you have balance at this stage, and in the, in the soul and in the spiritual level, it's it's actually the creation of what the alchemist Paracelsus uh, referred to as the astral body or the or the stellar body which is a incarnation or like a second body. And it's a reincarnation, a rebirth on a new level that we see in all types of religions, uh, the glorious body of, of, uh, of heaven that we exist in in this realm. But alchemy uh, is different from religions in the sense that uh, you don't want to remain at this level. You don't necessarily want to remain in heaven. The whole goal in alchemy is to return to earth, and that's what the Emerald Tablet tells us. Even in the in the uh, coagulation stage, where we have perfected our personality, the idea is to return to Earth with it, and to make it manifest in reality. Because that's what the evolution of the universe as whole is all about. It's the introduction of spirit into matter and spiritizing the universe. So the alchemist does not remain in heaven. Uh, he does not want to remain in this astral state. He wants to return to Earth in a new incarnation to continue in the processes of multiplication and projection by putting these spiritual principles into work in the universe. And it's it's what Buddha did. It's what Jesus did after they went through the alchemy of their own uh, spirit. Uh, they returned to earth to teach and to uh, spread this, this word that spirit in matter uh, was real. You describe your own process of coagulation as hanging from a kite string. Exactly, and and that's kind of what it felt like for me. Uh, I was uh, at this stage. I I'd 
wanted to express this astral body that the alchemist had talked about so much uh, as an out-of-body experience, and I wanted to go through deliberate methods to try and project or at least experience the astral body. It was one of those things when you focus so intensely on something that you lose track of the energies, and it's what the alchemist meant by you had to be living all the time. You, you couldn't be dead. You couldn't just think logically. It had to be a, a living experience, and uh, and I turned it into more of a of a intellectual exercise and I tried to go through these steps of projecting my body, going through meditation, listening to tapes and all kinds of things like that. One day I, I was uh, at home, everybody was gone for once and I was, it was a weekend on a Saturday and I, um, early in the morning I sat in uh, a living room chair in my recliner and just was going to convince myself I'm going to sit there until I project my body across the room. I did. I sat there for many, many hours going through what I call the grand meditation, where we try and go through these steps in the alchemical formula over and over again. It wasn't until uh, late in the evening, I must have been doing this for like 12 hours or so, that uh, that I realized it was dark in the room, even though I had my eyes closed and was meditating. And uh, I heard someone stumbling around in the house, and I knew no one was home. And I was suddenly terrified that perhaps a burglar had gotten in or somebody was rifling a bot. Yet I was in such a deeply relaxed state that it was hard to muscle my body up to, to um, it was almost like I was paralyzed uh, in a state uh, where I couldn't jump up as fast as I wanted to. I was that in, in, in deep in meditation. I heard uh, noises uh, and I thought uh, that I should run into the kitchen and hide and, and perhaps see what was going on. I thought I heard someone open a box and put things into it and like they were burglarizing the house so the next thing i knew i'd sprung up from the chair and i was behind the kitchen door looking through the crack in the door into the uh, the entryway to the house and indeed there was a box sitting there and i said well they're stealing everything you know what what should i do and i'm panicking like that and all of a sudden there's a, a flashlight that comes up from behind me and i'm thinking that this is a burglar who's caught me in the corner and i'm just terrified at this stage i turn around and it's it's a it's a brilliant yellow light that's going from my body all the way onto the kitchen floor, almost as if it's a, a heavy golden light that has weight, and it, it goes from my heart back to the chair, and I'm looking at my own body sitting there, and this light is entering my head, and the instant I did that, and the instant I saw that, I was snapped back into my body, but I had experienced this astral body, not in any deliberate way, but by the living emotion uh, of being uh, propelled out of my body, so uh, I, fi I finally experienced the astral body. Mm. Dennis William Hook, what a pleasure it has been to spend these two hours with you discussing alchemy. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Yeah. I'm, I'm delighted that we covered the seven stages. I'm delighted that we covered the four elements mm. and some things about the history of alchemy and the Emerald Tablet. It's, it's been a joy, and I know we've just scratched the surface of, of this extraordinarily rich tradition. Dennis, we have about a minute left. Do you have a final thought to share with our listeners? I think that uh, that the idea of alchemy is to begin your transformation by living and uh, th by throwing yourself into life. Uh, so I would say don't be afraid to try the fires of existence. And the worst thing you can do is not participate in your own life uh, through fear or, or others' pressures. And uh, so get out there and live, and that will make alchemy happen. Yeah, when you think of uh, distillation and fermentation and calcination and dissolution, it may sound horrible. <laughs> but it's part of our, our function spiritually, and uh, and as it's the meaning of our existence, really. Uh huh. And these ultimately are, are ordeals of a sort, but once uh, we've passed through them, uh, we are larger. Larger. There's such reward waiting for us in perspective and understanding uh and really, it's not only us, it's the whole universe undergoing this transformation. So we become part of the exactly. alchemy of the universe itself. Right. Dennis William Hauck, thank you once again for being with me. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's been very nice.